This is an Urbanarium City Talk, a podcast for city lovers. Episode one is a city circle recorded live on October 27th at CanU 2020, on the eve of Vancouver developing its comprehensive plan and as the Squamish Nation launches its new development, Sanak. Joyce Drohan, chair of CanU 2020, sets up the conversation with an assembled group of planners and designers involved in citywide plans around the world, where they explore the steps their city is taking to design better neighborhoods to support community resilience. Let's begin. Vancouver's at a watershed moment in the midst of a citywide plan, in the midst of a pandemic. It's grappling with enormous challenges from equity to racism, from homelessness to affordability to climate change and more. But there is hope. And one good example is that reconciliation will become a cornerstone of the city plan that's underway. The local First Nations, the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh have several neighborhoods uh, under development that promise to be promise to to be progressive neighborhoods and have a big impact on the future of the city. We're very pleased today to have Kisalem here to moderate this very unique discussion. Kisalem is the elected counselor of the Squamish nation. And in the spirit of a traditional wisdom circle, um, he will be engaging with our esteemed guests who hail from Stockholm, from Ottawa, from Auckland, and Edmonton. And they're here uh, with the promise of bringing their wisdom and offering um, some friendly advice uh, from their own recently completed city plans. Uh, Gil Kelly, Director of Planning for Vancouver, is in the special role of listener, and uh, we hope you all stay to the end of this discussion when he'll be offering his reflections on what's been said and what that might mean to the city plan. So to set the stage for today's dialogue, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Karis Hebert, the manager of the Vancouver Plan, to give you a brief overview of the work underway. Karis. Great. Thank you, Joyce. Um, I just want to begin my brief introduction by noting our presence on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations, and my gratitude for the opportunity to live and work on these lands. I was asked to briefly make some comments on Vancouver's uh, citywide planning effort. For context, our effort to develop a citywide plan began in late 2018 when City Council directed staff to scope the project and approved a scope of work in the summer of 2019. I think the reasons that Council saw the need for a citywide plan were varied. Um, Although Vancouver is known as a dynamic and livable city in a spectacular natural setting, we alongside many other cities face serious imminent and long-term challenges, including growing unaffordability, particularly housing unaffordability, increasing inequity between rich and poor, the potential for disasters such as earthquakes, and the impacts of climate change. Vancouver is growing and facing challenges in keeping pace with supportive transportation and utility infrastructure as well. 
While we are known uh, for innovative citywide policy in a range of areas from climate action uh, to our housing strategy to our resilient Vancouver strategy, we currently don't have a holistic comprehensive plan that knits these strategies together. Indeed, we haven't had a citywide plan since the mid-90s, nor a citywide spatial plan since 1928. In light of the large and very interrelated challenges that we face as a city, Council deemed it a priority to define an integrated long-range vision that articulates a clear set of priorities and policies for our city's future over the next 30 to 50 years. So toward that end, in November of last year, we began our first phase um, of the citywide plan project process, a highly consultative, um, people-centered, and inclusive engagement process, which we have just recently uh, completed and resulted in our first report to Council, uh, defining provisional goals for our plan moving forward. We are transitioning to phase two, which is to develop strategic policy directions and the first draft of a spatial uh, plan in the coming year, including a focus on the biggest steps that we can take uh, towards supporting community resilience in our policy directions, as well as, importantly, advancing reconciliation and equity. So with that, I'll thank you for your time, and I'm very much looking forward to the dialogue uh, today and what we have to learn from the panelists and their experiences. Thanks very much, Karis. Um, we do have a special guest today to welcome us into the circle. Um, it's my honor to be able to introduce to you Hereditary Chief of the Squamish Nation, Chief Janice George. Osiam, Jephemi Osiam, Kwashamantana, Tanachin Lasnak, Eskahot Mish Uchameoch, Anmanacht and Squalwin. Um, I'm here as a respectful person. I just said peace to um, every one of you. I as Traptanoya. Um, my, my hereditary chieftainship comes from Sinak, which is today called False Creek. And um, my ancestor, Jaqim, settled that area. Um, and I just want to thank you so much for uh, in, inviting me to this. It's such an important conversation. And I just want to thank Salem for um, taking the time to represent our people in this important, important conversation. Um, uh, thinking about resilience and um, growing together, having a long-term plan, um, community planning, uh, social resistance. This is this is not new to the Squamish people, and um, these are things that we've, you know, our ancestors have thought about from the beginning of time. You know, I just uh, encourage you to think about these places where. Um, um, you recognize today as Stanley Park, and that's where that was our largest Squamish largest village. Uh, Horseshoe Bay was the place where we um, um, got herring row set out our cedar branches to get the herring row. All these places that are highly recognizable in the city, um, hunting grounds around the Robson Street area. Now we hunt for bargains, so it's okay. Um, that's fun, but um, uh, you know, just to keep in mind those things that. Um, our people know about, you know, our relatives, the Musqueam and the Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish. We all know about this land so intimately. And I think it's um, so important to include um, include uh, Indigenous people in the conversation, our, our um, home nations. 
because of um, because I think it's important for everyone to have this connection to the land, but not only the connection to the land, but what has happened there, what um, what the land was used for. You know, I feel like everyone deserves to have that connection because it's um, so meaningful. And I think if, um, you know, we were more visible in the city to understand what happened in the city that, um, you know, a lot of us will um, feel more connected to the land. And I think everybody should, everybody should. Um, so I, I um, and I think about Sanok and the exciting things that are going on there that um, Coliseum has been a big, huge part of. And, um, you know, all of our people, you know, thinking about it, talking about it, and we're excited about it as well. I just want to, you know, we have this big modern, um, big modern building buildings going up, and I just wanted to um, read you a little bit about what the the chief said, Jabhaim. Um, he said, "This was his speech. I'm glad to see you. I know you come as our friend, and all my people welcome you. I have heard you speak, and these are our words to you." We do not wish to prevent the railway from entering and passing through our land, and we are willing that the company should have right of way. They now own everything here, but why do they wish to take, after they have come onto our land, the little that we have left? It is not long since we were told by the Queen's Reserve Commissioners that they would keep for us the land set aside many years ago. They added as much more, which they told us would be ours forever. Does the queen wish to give us land in order to make our hearts sick by allowing it to be taken away from us afterwards? We are weak. There are only a few of us, but the queen is strong and can do what she likes. We can only ask you to protect us. We cannot defend ourselves. It was in the queen's heart to treat us well, justly, when we received, when we received her promise that this land would always be kept for us. Does she wish to break her word and take all our land back? I cannot think this or you would not be here. We want to write strongly about this land. It is our home. Our ancestors are buried here. We are willing to let the railroad pass through our land, but no more. We hope you can protect us. My people implore you to do this. We wish to cultivate this land and look upon it as the home of ourselves and our children who come after us. And, you know, every day our people and our relatives look out the window or look out the door and see what our ancestors have left for us, how important it is for us to see that and how, how important it is and prideful to know how our ancestors kept this, this beautiful place for us and kept us connected to the land. And, you know, it'll be like that for generations. I teach my grandson about the Capilano River. We go to the Park Royal Mall and I say, that's your river. That's your river to keep clean and take care of before he could even speak. Now he's eight and he told his mom the other day, you know what, mom? The river grew. The river grew because I grew. So I love that connection he has to it. It's like he's connected to that place now. You know, and, and um, our people do that. You know, our people are connected to the land. That river has taken care of us from the beginning of time. 
So I, I feel like this is such important work and um, look forward to hearing the results and maybe Kalsiel can pass me along the information. So I just want to thank you so much for inviting me, OCM. Good day, everybody. Uh, I wanted to say, uh, Yet some teeth eat, not to tamel, not to ochomel, not to stomach, eat to swamchet. On e aim qui snatchums to quetsi chephemt siam, amen chukwa chukwa to tatanate, eochtatates up to swamchet, eat to nameth, eat to quihame stomach. I just wanted to share a thank you to Chukhemia Siam, uh, Chief Janice George, um, my dear relative um, from, from my community of the Skultmish people. I just shared in a language a thank you for your words, um, for echoing those words of our ancestors of the, the late uh, Chukhem from not too long ago. Um, and your words talking about uh, the work of our ancestors, the work of us today and the work of uh, the people to come. And I really want to thank uh, everybody for being here today for this special dialogue. For those who don't know me, my name is Khal Salem, uh, elected counselor with the Squamish Nation and one of the two spokespersons for the Squamish Nation. Squamish Nation is one of three First Nations within the area uh, of present-day Vancouver. Our historical lines connect us to these three uh, nations through genealogy and culture uh, ceremony and cultural practices and where present-day vancouver is today as a harbor city and as a growing city sits atop the unceded jurisdiction of these three nations these indigenous nations who have lived here for time immemorial and as mentioned uh as nations who have been impacted by colonialism and then now urbanism the nations are beginning the process of asserting themselves as decision makers within the territory once again, as uh, influencers across the region, and in the coming decades as city makers and city builders through the development of a number of neighborhoods, both within our home communities um, on the reserve lands that we have on the North Shore of Vancouver, uh, on the North Arm of the Fraser with the Musqueam community, um, Ulf, which is on the North Shore near um, Dollarton Highway, but also through many of the lands that have come back to the nations through very um, unique partnerships and arrangements to reacquire lands that were previously taken by the federal and provincial governments and to use those lands to generate both economic value back to the communities, to support the hopes and dreams of indigenous peoples who have been uh, in many ways marginalized by successive policies and governments who have been alienated from their territories and the resources that have been usurped from those lands, uh, which would, were, had never um, benefited those communities, to now in a place where um, the largest private property owner in Vancouver is the three nations. There is no 
private owner of land that owns as much land as the three nations. And that is through a very successful negotiation, um, assertion of rights, and uh, a successive legacy of our ancestors uh, refusing to surrender um, as the true stewards and owners of these lands. But it also takes us to an opportunity as we reflect on what it means now for uh, the nations to have a seat at the table and what it means for government, especially at a municipal level, like at the city of Vancouver, to uphold, affirm and respect the place of indigenous peoples and the place of the true title holders from these lands within the broader context of the work of the city, the future of the city, and uh, rectifying perhaps the pasts of the city as well. Our panelists for today is that we have Olivia Hayden from the uh, Mari Design at Auckland Council, Auckland City Plan in Aotearoa, New Zealand, Tenakoto. Uh, we have Evelina Hafstein Satteri, Senior Urban Designer of the Stockholm Plan from Stockholm, Sweden. We have uh, Kaylin Anderson from the Office of the City Plan at Edmonton, Alberta. And we have Alain uh, Miguelez, Manager Policy Planning at the City of Ottawa for the Ottawa Plan. And of course, we have Gil Kelly, General Manager of Planning, Urban Design and Sustainability from the City of Vancouver uh, and the City Vancouver City Plan, who will be our respondent to the discussion today. So we're going to go in our tradition um, amongst the Coast Salish people. We go by the guests who have traveled the furthest to arrive to here. I know we're all at our home communities right now, but theoretically, um, from the furthest, I think I didn't pull out my ruler, but I think New Zealand is possibly further than uh, Sweden. <laughs> and so we'll start with uh, just the list of names that, as I read them, we'll go through. And the, the opening questions, um, which have been shared with our panelists, but before our audience, two questions that you can weave together as best as you can. What are the key urban design initiatives your city plan has introduced to foster deep community resilience? And what, if you can include just some notes on what jurisdictional tools have been really effective to make those initiatives happen. So I'll hand it over to you, Olivia. Kina tangata o Canada, kina fenua o teatahuatanga o to tupuna. Tena ratato katoa namahi kiakue kasilam. I'd like to thank you very much uh, for your welcome uh, and for the background and introduction by your esteemed chief, your uh, your auntie or your relative. Um, and to hear her story of her place and of her people in relationship to Vancouver. Um, so far away from here, uh, but so connected. I felt a sisterhood, a kinship. I felt the tears of her ancestors, like her river, like her grandson, her mokupuna, the river that he speaks about. And that she enables him and that she tells of the stories of her people who have been told to her, who were once told to them, and a continuation of their spirit in your place. 
It is a struggle without end, <laughs> but it is a human struggle and it is all of our struggles. There is a future in it and coming together of minds, hearts, of ancestors for the empowerment of your place could not be a better future. So here in Tāmaki Makoro, we have our Auckland plan and it was first established officially in 2012 and it has a history um, in its beginning because it was um, the first time our city as a region had been unified of multiple councils coming together um, to form a comprehensive spatial understanding of who we are, who our place is, and what our issues are, the good, the bad, the ugly, and going forward, how we can create a vision for, the, for our place. It, it was a very big vision. Um, it was all-encompassing and it was holistic and it covered multiple dimensions. Six years on, um, the growth that this plan was talking about had caught up with us very, very fast and it needed to be refreshed. So um, in 2018, this refresh of the Auckland plan uh, was attempted again and it streamlined the process, established, um, identified sort of the three key challenges as a city that we face and set up sort of six areas or outcomes um, to focus on in terms of where our needs were and how we would be best um, envisioned to deal with them. It's an aspirational document and it sets a strategic direction uh, to guide uh, further suites of planning for specific areas that come out of it. It was inclusive. Um, Initially, how I was in, um, in, uh, inspired to um, start on this work path was because it identified for the first time and spoke to me as Māori how important my identity is in the city. So very clearly, it attempts to integrate a treaty-based vision and framework to help guide development. It also integrates and prioritise prioritizes all the social and environmental aspects that are really important to me as Māori. Kaselem, what, what else can I kind of um, speak to you about our plan? What interests you to hear? Um, just anything you might want to specify around how the concepts of resilience might have made its way or how it responded to things like resilience or is there resiliency included in, in some of the concepts in the plan? So it's cohesive approach is how resilience is um, kind of attempted to be um, drawn out in terms that it, it, belonging and participation for our communities is a massive priority. Um, Māori identity and well-being and all that that encompasses. And these are very high and broad themes, broad outcomes. There's, there's six areas, of course. There's all the our homes and our places where our homes are at are really important. So the aspects around inclusive and affordability. Um, of course, there's things like transport and access. So things that transport that has to be easy and accessible and sustainable. So our context is really considered through analysis. It's really understood. 
um, and also our, our constraints, our, what the opportunities are within that and how we can give guidance and direction for future development. Of course, opportunity and prosperity is a big thing. So this is our standards of living and how we deal with that. Um, what, what our key challenges are, there are three that are really key to our growth over the next uh, 30 years. And of course, that's population growth and all that comes with it, the demands on housing, jobs, and also the environment is a key component of that. So this development, uh, urban development in areas and how that's going to impact our environment and also what we can do about that. So this is where Māori are key. Uh, we are kaitiaki stewards and how we're brought into that process of decision-making and how our values are highlighted. So how our rivers how our um, receiving environments are restored, cared for and protected are ultimately very, very important. And it's within this that, this that these values are embedded and we are engaged in making decisions around this. So our key indicators, these aren't necessarily spelt out in high-level kind of detail in the Auckland plan. That's in our process, in our policy and our other plans and also in our... Um, regulatory processes where, which we're working through and ironing out all the time and how to better engage with this and detail these, these values. Um, also shared prosperity is a key challenge. So knowing where our inequality is and in the Auckland context, this is very geographic. So, um, you know, socioeconomic deprivation, we have, um, how do we share that prosperity that many uh, have achieved and others are locked out of? So a lot of it is structural. Um, so having a, a deep understanding of that and also where it exists is really, really important to our plan. And then how we go about giving access across the board to prosperity to those without uh, the other third challenge is, as I've spoken, environmental degradation with growth, um, how we can um, lessen the impact of urban development. And this can be done through clever design and prioritising of our values. Um, and also how we deal with the effects and impacts of climate change. The big one for Auckland is water inundation um, and the impacts of, on our biodiversity. The big thing of the plan um, is to treaty, the Treaty of Waitangi. That is our, our nation's founding document. Um, there is a big focus and acknowledgement of this in our plan. So it outlines um, our statutory requirements um, and how we might share power in decision-making. So what are the principles of that treaty that can be embedded into our governance, co-governance, and how we promote the principle of partnership for the future and affirm Māori values for Auckland. This is a big one. Um, it's kind of how our bicultural foundations um, form a platform for an intercultural Auckland. So um, how um, the structures of power and control that have come out of our colonial um, formation of the city can be shared. Um, and so this was um, unfortunately 
was recognised in the early formations of our unified city that um, a Royal Commission uh, investigation um, recommendations were made that our seats of power and council were made up of a 50-50 partnership share. So 50 seats for Māori participation given and 50 made up of um, normal process elected. And um, this was too hard. Uh, for our politicians, um, our society was not ready for that recommendation. Um, and we've been working through this. Uh, and it's building capacity, understanding and knowledge. And I think we are making great advances. But, Kasevan, um, you've asked what one of your key questions. What, um, what would you advise um, to plan makers um, on the city plan project? if you could go back in time. And so it would be be brave, be bold, and trust in a treaty-based partnership for the governance of our city. Adopt the recommendations of the Royal Commission for a 50-50 share in the seats of power of council instead of the direction taken to keep Māori marginalised in a democratic minority in decision-making due to fear and the lack of understanding of our treaty partnership. Wonderful, thank you for that. Um, next, I'm gonna ask for Evelina to respond from Stockholm. Yes, hello. Um, this is Stockholm calling. Uh, I'm very happy to be invited to this uh, digital round table uh, to share some insights uh, on Stockholm city plan, the main features and how it's being used now since it's been implemented three years ago. So the Stockholm City Plan, I will just briefly tell you a bit about it. It's the comprehensive plan uh, for Stockholm. It's a core document that states what assets, goals and strategies to focus on when developing Stockholm, as all comprehensive plans do. The context in which this comprehensive plan is written is the rapid expansion that is currently happening in Stockholm. For example, as you have all mentioned, for your cities, uh, a, a large amount of new homes needs to be created. For Stockholm, it's 140,000 new homes that we need to create to 2040. The lack of housing affects quality of life for Stockholmers and makes it hard or even impossible to move to the city. This also affects a number of other things, such as Stockholm's ability to keep and attract businesses. Uh, in which many other aspects find Stockholm attractive. And another important context is how segregation and inequality is growing in Stockholm, as in many other cities across the globe. So with these and a few other challenges, we need a plan that leads us through urban design towards a more dense, but still appreciated and attractive city with urban environments that offers equal access to urban assets. The framework of this conversation is not to talk so much about the actual plan, but to share what works and what we have learned. So I will just touch on three main features briefly that I think uh, will be important. The first main feature of the Stockholm City Plan are its four goals. And they may seem generic or overlapping, but for our planning context and the challenges that we face and the organization that we have at the planning department, uh, they are really useful. 
So I'm not in order of importance, uh, but the first goal is to be a growing city, to embrace growth. And this puts focus on the urban content. Homes are undoubtedly always in the spotlight, but the future Stockholm needs to be diverse and of mixed use. And to make space for schools, preschools, public institutions, theatres and so forth in an early stage is key. The second and third goal is a cohesive city and good public space. And these goals are both about making sure that we seize this opportunity that we're in at the moment to build a better geographically as well as socially cohesive urban environment. And the climate smart and resilient is the fourth goal. And this is the goal for handling the scarce resource that land and property is and use it wisely with aspects of climate change and future generations. So these four goals, they are the same goals for all of Stockholm, meaning all of Stockholm shall be developed with these key urban qualities. How exactly they are carried out or to what extent is not stated in the plan. But when we work further in the local context, this is analyzed. So how, how uh, resilient a particular part of Stockholm is or how well it is connected to its surrounding areas is analyzed in the, uh, in the following uh, phases of urban design and gives us uh, to see if we have a task at hand, an opportunity to make the most of, to make this area more resilient or better integrated with the surroundings. And the second main feature is a map, a fold-out plan that shows that though all of Stockholm is expected to be developed with very few ex exceptions like the old town, for example, different parts of Stockholm will be affected in a varying degree. So four shades in the map tells you if this part of Stockholm may undergo extensive shift in land use and character, or if the long-term strategy is to add projects, streets and other urban assets to continue to grow within the existing characters of the area, or if it's the part of Stockholm likely to be developed through infill and smaller projects only, or maybe not at all. And this map also points out areas to prioritize in the near future to make sure areas uh, in the risk of falling behind does not do so. And this is important for long-term social resilience to state the importance that all of Stockholm shall gain from this expansion. Because though Stockholm municipality is the major landowner within the city's borders, property development is always partnered with property developers. And this aspect of the map brings out areas and connections that are important, though not the markets top of mind. Uh, so to sum up, uh, four goals for all of Stockholm and four sh shades of change and prioritized areas in the fold-out plan. Of course, there's much more to be told about this, uh, but I would, what we've learned and what I would like to share from the Stockholm City Plan is how useful it is, though very abstract almost, if you compare with previous plans 
that are more geographically elaborated, how useful this kind of abstract plan is. But to succeed in making the goals concrete in the following urban design practice, the capacity to analyze the city is an important key. So parallel to making the new city plan three years ago, the planning department started building an organization with the ability to study the city's needs and propose ways to develop scenario creation and testing with support of GIS, Geographic Information System. So this is still being developed, but will help us overlooking the effects that urban design may have or should have, because circumstances can shift, but focus needs to be steady and a goal-oriented plan uh, we find is useful for this. Thank you. I'm going to move on to Kaylin Anderson at Edmonton. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. The Edmonton City Plan. Um, thank you to all of the wise people in the past who have very clearly articulated that a city plan is just called the city plan. On that basis, Edmonton now has, for the first time, a city plan. And reflecting on many things that I've heard already to date, it, it shares many of the same characteristics. For example, it pulls together all of our aspirations around um, economy, environment, transportation, land use, and people services into one plan. It also is very much focused on um, creating policies for people and then having the infrastructure, uh, spatial components of the plan embedded in service of that larger idea. Um, and I'd like to thank actually Auckland, we really read your plan uh, a lot and uh, found the way that it was organized by value um, extremely instructive. And we, um, like all good urbanists and planners, plagiarized you because it's all just a big sharing circle here. Um, and hopefully we, we've done a little bit that somebody else will find useful over time. And then in terms of thinking about that question of resilience, just to kind of get to it. So great, planning for people, thinking about actually embedding a spatial plan, um, putting all of our concepts together. And then when we thought about resilience, we made a couple of key choices right up front. Uh, Edmonton, Alberta is has typically grown one way, and that's out. Um, we've been, I like to remind myself and others that our community was um, only incorporated in 1904, but by 1912, we'd already annexed our first town, and we've never stopped annexing since. So it's over 100 years of kind of taking on the neighboring communities, um, and Olivia and Salem, we actually have a few First Nations neighbors, but we have one immediate neighbor. Nobody's in Edmonton as a geographic area, um, but our, our neighbor Enoch now, we share a border, like really share a border. These communities used to be quite far apart. So I, I kind of wonder if Enoch, the next time we do our city planning process, which hopefully will be in a few decades instead of a few years, if they won't be uh, calling you up and saying, how do we plan in a really urban context? Um, so anyway, so that's a little bit about our community. So one of the things we did in terms of resilience, uh, without getting too off track, is to say, let's keep our boundary. Okay, let's, let's just plan 
to keep our boundary instead of planning to fill it up and then annex more land over time. So we said, nope, let's keep our boundary and let's also give ourselves a growth goal. So much to Evelina's point about being a, a growth-focused city and embracing it, encouraging it, and attracting it, our plan is planning to grow deliberately from one to two million people, which is a doubling of our population. So essentially, we were planning to double our population within our current um, boundary. We do have room, of course, for new suburban growth to happen. But to achieve that idea, we're going to have to significantly ramp up um, our uh, redevelopment context all across the city, not just in the core, but all across the city. And to the to weave in the question about regulatory tools, one of the things that's so beautiful that I don't think that we'd act actually really leveraged properly is that we control the transportation system as well as the land use planning system. Um, so building in this idea of creating dense, complete communities and um, building that on the backbone of a, a very vastly expanded mass transit system so that we can actually accommodate a different way of living um, was really critical to our plan. So we are at an interesting point of the process in the process. Um, Alain and I talk quite a bit about this kind of thing and I'm sure we'll be chatting with Vancouver more but we're not done unlike Auckland and Stockholm who've had their plans in place for a couple of years and can talk about how things are going we're actually very much still in the in the process of getting it finished so uh, my city council received Edmonton city plan in September at public hearing and gave it two readings which for political purposes really means it's endorsed and it's ready to go um, but right now it's undergoing regional review and then it will come back actually uh, for final third reading until December. So until then, um, Edmonton City Plan is still a draft. It's still an idea. Um, but I think that we're on track uh, to, to put ourselves in position to have a very comprehensive people-centered plan that's trying to be more careful with our resources, more conscious about our neighbours, um, and think strategically about the assets that we have to work with over time. Wonderful. Thank you. We're going to move on to Alain from uh, City of Ottawa. Miigwech, first of all, uh, Algonquin word for thank you. I realize it's not the same language, but I wanted to acknowledge uh, your kind invitation. Um, to the question, what bold moves can cities do uh, in their planning uh, in order to become more resilient? I just want to share with you, I guess, the philosophy behind the Ottawa plan, the new official plan, which is a completely new uh, plan that we're in the process of drafting. It's not yet adopted. We are releasing our first draft next month. But we have in our territory, um, and it is the unceded uh, land of the Algonquin host nation. It is a metropolitan area that is also um, on two provinces, Ontario and Quebec. And that is not a border that exists in the Algonquin uh, tradition. Um, but we do have interprovincial discussions with uh, jurisdictions in Quebec, including the city of Gatineau and with the federal government. The plan for the city of Ottawa takes all that into account. We are also planning for growth. We are planning to set the stage for a metropolitan area of two to three million people. And the city of Ottawa within its limits, uh, political limits, has um, the responsibility for the, the entire continuum between nature and city. And one of the first things that we're doing is that we're philosophically moving away from the 20th century approach to planning, which was planning by land use. We're not land use planning anymore. We're planning by context, by understanding the land, and uh, planning by form and function in order to talk about what purpose 
to attribute to land and therefore what to do about it. And that's a complete philosophical shift because we will not have land use designations anymore. Uh, the plan that we're adopting uh, is based on what we call the transect. The transect is the continuum between nature to rural to suburb to outer urban, to inner urban, and to downtown. So it's a, it's a series of concentric circles that start from the middle, the, the historic old city, and move out in concentric circles. And as, as you move out from the center, you diminish urbanization until you get to the rural and then to the natural. And we want to do a few things with that plan. One is that we want to give our city council, as Kaylin mentioned, the option to never have to expand the urban boundary ever again. We realize that philosophically, the best way to protect the land and to honor it is to not urbanize it in the first place. So as we grow livably to a region of two to three million people, we want to make sure that we are doing it responsibly and in symbiosis with the land, the land that needs to feed us and the land that needs to nurture us and the land that needs to also surround us and participate to the natural functions and ecosystem functions that are so valuable and that we've ignored for too long. Um, we also control our transportation system. So in our new city plan, we will have a robust new mobility section. And basically we also have, as in Stockholm's examples, um, five big moves, five big moves that, that basically are the premise of all policies that flow from the plan. And those really uh, are also very high level, but they lead us to uh, being able to uh, talk about goals and objectives and then the right policies that should be attached to each of these concentric circles or transect areas. And in the areas where we want to start to tr uh, transform from suburban to urban, we're going to use what we call overlays, policy overlays. And we're going to have very clear definition and very clear guidance as to how to transform what we call our bungalow belt, for instance. So from our downtown core, we have our early, uh, so late 19th century and early 20th century neighborhoods. And then we have the after World War II neighborhoods, which are the bungalow belt neighborhoods. Those are now ready to become more urban. We want to integrate them into the pedestrian city. We want to use uh, the new transit lines that we're building out towards these areas to completely change the pattern of how um, people function. And just quickly to the question of what has worked well, what has worked well in consultation for us is not to talk about intensification anymore. We're still, you know, pursuing that goal, but intensification has pissed off a lot of neighborhoods because it feels to them like it's all about cramming in new people and hitting numbers and targets. We're now talking about regeneration. It's about integrating new generations into existing neighborhoods and making sure that the neighborhoods are keeping up with the increase in population are keeping up in services and green space and public realm and shops and schools and daycares so that they become full complete communities. The other thing that has worked well for us is talking about 15 minute neighborhoods. What would it take for your neighborhood to work as a 15 minute neighborhood where everything is within a 15 minute walk of your home? And we acknowledge through the transect that not all neighborhoods are there yet. Some are just about to, some are there, some are so far behind that the one thing that's missing is critical mass of people. They don't have enough people. So the thing that they need to work on most is to populate themselves enough in order to have that critical mass that will make them become 15 minute neighborhoods. Um, it's still too early in the process to um, 
talk about what has not worked because it's not yet adopted and we haven't st started using it. But we have been having very um, frank and candid conversations with neighborhoods about what the future looks like. And we have been saying this is a 21st century plan. It's not the continuation of 20th uh, century planning. It's a completely different paradigm. These are different needs. And we need to think of the city in terms of its future, not in terms of what it's carrying behind in terms of um, uh, legacy and, uh, and perhaps baggage. Thank you. Thank you. There is a history of city plans um, used, uh, especially in North America, but probably around the world, that have been used as exclusionary tools, as racist tools, uh, especially to control populations. Uh, and I'm, I'm interested to know from your experiences or from where your outlook is, um, how has your work, if anybody wants to take on this question, how has, uh, you know, a, how can a contemporary city planning process respond to or address this aspect of city planning? Um, I'd just like to say yes. <laughs> um, ultimately, we are all still working in a framework of coloniality, which preferences, and may I say it, the great white way. Um, over other ways of being, doing, and knowing. In places like the Americas, Australia, and New Zealand, all of our structures of power and control that we operate with today have been born out of the era of colonialism. And ultimately, planning is a European practice or legacy in which we have inherited. It's a form of power and control over others um, and resources. So transformational change will occur when we truly address structural change. Um, and our plan is starting to scratch on that surface, um, but it's the work underneath that plan. The plan states the aspiration. Um, it must be inclusive. So it must engage and it must um, have been written with what I say, your taringa or your ears. So those that scribe the plan, who write the plan, have to um, not be the experts. It is the communities of place and the people of their place who are experts. They know what they need um, and what is best. And it is our job as specialists to help translate that into a vision. So um, there's still a lot of work and that work is to understand ourselves and to understand the context that we operate in. And um, I'm hearing a lot of language um, that in the plans that is pretty universal and in an urban design approach. And we've got to be careful. Uh, and I also heard that the Auckland plan was um, uh, set as um, it was appropriated. And I kind of went, oh, please be careful with that because this comes out of our context. Please know your own space, your own land, your own people, your own vision and your own history to write your plan. Um, and what I hadn't realised, though, is that the Auckland plan is um, early uh, compared to where you, you are at um, and that we have this kind of, um, I've been so so focused internally on our own you know, internal gazing that we aren't looking out and, at how the world sees us. And perhaps that's a really good good thing to be doing. Um, a lot of our work in further down in programs, projects and operation is where the actual transformation begins. These are the structures um, that 
we need to address business as usual and how we, we do things. And in terms of the Indigenous space, um, it is our knowledge, it is our memory, and it is our way um, of building these values and systems and the blending of them for in innovation to our problems and issues in an urban space. So when we think of climate change um, or we think about environmental change, uh, the degradation that has occurred mm. in our urban environments that impacts our harbours, our waterways, our valleys, our mountains, our biodiversity and our forests, this is when Indigenous knowledge or memory in a contemporary sense is very, very powerful it, if we listen to it, if we, we understand it and we embed it and how we do things and how we value and make decisions. Uh, we call it decolonizing. It's a buzzword here. You may have the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if I can. Yeah, Elaine. If I can just say, I mean, I think uh, to Olivia's point, um, I think language and the, the way we use language can uh, start the discussion in one way or another, but it can also be very helpful. And this is where we're also trying to get away from the baggage and the weight of 20th century planning that had, you know, assigned land uses. So we're not talking about, you know, typical plans would talk about residential and commercial, you know, and, and you know, parks. We're not talking about any of that anymore. We're talking about neighborhoods. And when we're talking about neighborhoods, we want to talk about what can constitutes a complete neighborhood from a point of inclusion and from a point of let's let's look at it as uh, something that is integrated and not segregated. It's no um, mystery to anyone in this call that zoning has been used way over and above its intended purpose, which was to make sure that dirty, noisy, polluting factories were kept away from people's homes. That went all the way into making sure that we're segregating people by income segmentation based on how big a lot they can buy in order to put a house on it. And that's also something that we want to move away from. Our job as planners, as somebody famously said, is not to defend 50-foot lots from 40-foot lots. Those days are over. What we want to do instead is talk about what constitutes a complete community, a complete neighborhood, and what functions do we assign to each of the areas of the city or, or, or pieces of land. Um, and, you know, again, we have to be careful when we when we think of, you know, communities will tell us what they need. Some communities are going to tell us they don't need apartments. They don't need renters. They don't need small lots. And I'm sorry, that's that discussion is not on. That is not on the table. What we need is how do we get to complete neighborhoods and how do we take incomplete neighborhoods and make them complete neighborhoods? And, and that's, I think, where we're at. It's also about working with your communities. So you, as an expert around urban issues, there is a gap sometimes in the understanding and the privilege that you hold um, that they may not see. So how do you take them on the journey? How do you build um, knowledge and that aspiration of benefit that you both kind of meet in the middle ground, I think is really important as planners. Helen, did you ever, I think I saw your hand come up earlier on that question around um, the exclusionary aspects of planning in the past um, and how modern contemporary pla um, city planning can respond or address this. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know if I uh, put up my hand or just was vigorously nodding or smiling or oh. something. But <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I agree with 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 Alain. Um, we we all know the history of redlining and 
zoning bylaws, probably still some very uh, exclusionary or outright racist words lingering in the back pages of bylaws around the world, uh, maybe even in our own cities. Um, for example, so one of the things I would say about that is that zoning is where the, a lot of the rubber hits the road. Um, so in our community, we're rewriting the zoning bylaw explicitly with a, an equity perspective and um, a careful consideration of our uh, social context in mind. Um, it's not just about, um, like you see all kinds of different discrimination. It's not just about really blatant stuff like Chinese people can't buy land here, um, which used to be in bylaws. Um, hopefully nobody has that any, or anything like it uh, at all in their bylaws anymore. But there's also stuff around, um, you know, uh, limiting group homes. So people with different disabilities, um, there's all kinds of like little weird ways of, 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 of creating regulation. Uh, another way that um, disparity can be furthered is by not prioritizing infrastructure investment or by um, overprivileging um, high quality transportation infrastructure investment into certain areas of the city over others. So Olivia mentioned that her, in her community, um, there's a spatial component to inequity. And I think that probably that would be true of all of our cities. Um, so thinking that through is really important. Um, the only thing I would add though, as a word of caution um, to myself, to all of us is that notwithstanding the great words uh, or whatever we might have, have thought through as we worked with our communities to try to articulate to the best of our ability, the values that we heard. I'm sure there's something in all of our plans that future generations will be mildly horrified by. Um, and so I just think like that sense of um, like not having the hubris to think that we all wrote these great plans or implementing these great plans is critical. Um, being a lot more humble about them, iterating them a lot more constantly and being open to the feedback along the way is going to be really important. So one of the ways, and I don't know that this will be any kind of silver bullet, and I'm not trying to over uh, promise it, but one of the ways we're hoping to deal with that in Edmonton is by instead of creating this long range plan that sort of lasts forever and it's very pristine and it's on a shelf. And as soon as it stops working for us, we just start ignoring it. Um, instead, what we want to do this time is keep it up to date all the time. So ideally, every single year would be my dream, is that we could have a comprehensive plan that's alive, so that we don't have to let big problems build up or big dissonance build up. Um, and also so that we can admit that we actually, notwithstanding our best intention to try to set ourselves on an appropriate course, we probably didn't get it right. And there's going to be things that show up that we just didn't anticipate whether that's social um, social considerations, environmental ones, economic ones, or technological shifts. Um, we know that we're living in an age of disruption. So we, I guess we always have been, but what are we going to do right now at this moment to meet this moment in terms of all of the chaotic things that are happening? And here we are uh, collectively uh, working towards trying to settle uh, a long-term vision for our communities in this context of rapid change. Um, I guess what I'm saying is, it's really, I just, I hope we all stay humble in this and don't try to um, imagine that we've nailed it. And then hopefully all be uh, engaged enough in our communities to not think that we've spoken to every person or understand every perspective or that we've in fact integrated all of that effectively enough. Cause I think that would be a really hard thing to promise. But to Olivia's point, we can, we can try to commit to always listening and keeping our plans up to date. So that's, that's what I would add to that. Um, 
pretty bad legacy behind us, hopefully less bad in the future, but also let's be honest with ourselves uh, about how little we actually know in the space and open to new conversations and perspectives as they arise. Okay. Um, there's a couple of questions that have come in from the audience um, that if maybe if panelists want to even respond by text um, to those. I do have a quick question that I really wanted to hit and I'm going to give everybody just a minute to answer this question for our four panelists. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll start with Ilan and then Evelina and Callan and then Olivia. The question is, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice from when you started your work on, or when your city started its work on city plan, um, what advice would you give yourself? Like what's the main, if you, if you had a, a time machine that could get a one minute message across, um, what would you tell yourself? Probably exactly everything that Kaylin just uh, mentioned. I mean, we cannot um, have too much hubris and we have to remain humble and iterative and uh, constantly do checkbacks to make sure that we're aiming right and that we're adjusting course as needed as we go along. I mean, the big thing that we always try to message to people and, and that we have to message to ourselves is that, you know, a city is never finished. And the process of thinking about the city is never finished. And I liked what Evelina said about the ability to, to analyze the city and to understand it. And that also is an ongoing thing. The understanding that you secure on a neighborhood may be a different one five years or 10 years down the road. And you have to keep, keep on top of however things evolve and, and uh, be responsive to that change. I have a question in the chat about how the future scenario planning that we did form the new official plan. It was critical. Uh, I'll just answer it now. I mean, it was... Uh, scenario planning that dealt with uh, a number of, of possible futures, whether we like them or not, so that we are helping ourselves to at least anticipate and prepare uh, for, uh, for what we could see coming or worse whether we like it or not. And it has allowed us to, uh, well, definitely in how we composed the team that is working on the plan, we had, uh, even before the pandemic, two planners from Ottawa Public Health embedded here. We had a team of about 100 people in various different departments, uh, way beyond the planning department, contributing uh, in a very direct way to the, uh, the preparation of policies. And that's something that we want to keep going with, is to break down the internal silos within the municipality and keep talking about the plan, because it it has to be owned by everybody. Awesome, thank you. Uh, Evelina, I'll go to you quickly. Um, if you could go back in time, what, would you, what message would you send? Yeah, yeah, I would uh, continue. The, uh, Alain mentioned that I spoke earlier about uh, the ability to analyze the city. Uh, I would advise uh, myself and my colleagues to, uh, to really start to focus on that um, much earlier. We are learning now how to analyze the city but it's really key uh, because the city is a living system, it's dynamic. And also what we learn through analysis uh, is really useful uh, in, in dialogue with uh, citizens of Stockholm, uh, inhabitants and uh, all that is part of the city and developing the city. Uh, so yeah, that would be my advice. Thank you. Well, um, if I could go back, I would say um, you can't overinvest in public engagement. 
And I would also say stick to your guns. We made one really great decision, which is that we came up with a core question for the plan. So we weren't just asking people anything. We had like a thesis statement. Um, and our question that we asked the public was, what choices do we need to make to be a healthy, urban and climate resilient city of 2 million people that supports a prosperous region? So I would say, yes, so important to have that question because to Alain's point, we are not asking people just what do you want in your neighborhood? Um, because the answer is gonna be in many cases, I don't want anything. Or ideally I'd like to have nobody here that I don't know already, or there's a lot of different things <laughs> that might come out of a question that's open-ended. However, if you really fo focus it, we are becoming more urban, climate resilient, prosperous, and we're growing to 2 million. So then the question is what choices do we have to make? Um, that really worked really, really well for us. Um, so one of my takeaways was that I planned on our team investing about 30% of our time in marketing, engagement, outreach, and community conversation. And in hindsight, I think it was closer to 50. I still think we did a great job, um, but I would have um, reminded myself that um, while technical study and doing the math of city making is important, it's the community conversation that's actually the most fundamental piece to address, especially if you're authentically trying to create a people-centered plan, um, because it's not just about the costs of growth or the infrastructure requirements needed, although the technical study to Evelina's point is critical. Um, but I would say to myself, don't underestimate uh, stick with your guns on having a core question and uh, really drive to that and let people answer it in as many different ways as makes sense for them, um, but also never underestimate the power um, and potential of, of talking to community um, in any number of different ways um, and then to, to meet people where they are to make that happen. Thank you. And Olivia, I know you kind of um, answered this a little bit earlier, but I wonder if you just wanted to reiterate, what, what would your message be? Yeah, I, I kind of answered it at a, a really um, political and structural level in terms of Indigenous voice um, in, in place in terms of sovereignty and rights. However, in terms of um, building the, the, the plan itself, um, space and all its components are complex and always contested. Um, so, as Evelina and Elaine and Colleen have also suggested, you know, um, analysis is critical. So that, for me, is knowing your city, knowing your place. That's kind of understanding who you are in the world um, and also who you are together and all your components. Um, and every city is unique. Every community is unique and we all have our challenges, constraints and opportunities for change and progress. And so what I really um, think is really important is just understanding that context, however you may go about it, um, and how you understand the values that shape your place. What are, recognise and understand what is shared, what is common amongst all your communities, all your practices, and kind of really focus on what you value to create your values to go forward um, and what your vision and outcomes will be at a higher level. Wonderful, thank you. We have a number of questions that have come in from the audience. I'm gonna curate which ones we'll get to. I don't think we'll get to all of them, but we may be figure out how we can follow up. The one that I really wanna to touch on that I think is really interesting and we haven't really touched on yet is, um, the issue around land use and the way that the private sector or the market responds when governments make these types of decisions. 
And one of the um, fundamental roles that I think the public often doesn't really understand around city councils is aside from the legislative role of setting policy and bylaw and those types of things, uh, city governments are also in many ways the kind, the, they're the arbiter on behalf of the public that gets to determine um, how private interests are able to use basically the air above the land that they own to what level they're able to use it and what the city is going to receive as, as in exchange for giving those things out to the, that's generated by the public. So, you know, a developer sees that there's a school next to their development and they calculate, Oh, that's a 13% increase in profits for us because there's an amenity there, or maybe there's a transit hub next door, or maybe there's other kinds of amenities. So all of those types of decisions, um, will impact things. And I'm wondering if anybody wants to comment on, uh, I think maybe for the ones that have been further along in the city plan, um, how has the private sector in terms of the, de the development community responded um, when your city starts to implement uh, its city plan? Well, I mean, if I can just offer a couple of thoughts, uh, we're the, f the furthest away from implementation because we're still in draft but I think it goes back to um, how we define what is to be considered the public interest. And I think here we are again at a turning point. The public interest in the 20th century was defined very differently. It was to keep residences away from everything else and to have houses surrounded by nature. And it was to have every household with their own car and their own white picket fence, uh, you know, and, and that sort of dream which uh, today is not really representative of everything we've just been talking about in terms of resiliency, uh, social integration, equity and inclusion. Uh, you know, the basic fundamental ability to access what the city has to offer democratically, which is with your own two feet. And so the definition of public interest has changed. And to go back to um, uh, Evelina and Olivia and their point about educating or having the dialogue with people about what is our understanding of the public interest and recognizing that, you know, that understanding, the definition will change over time is not the same as last century's definition, but it is today's definition based on a number of other considerations that have to come into the mix, including affordability, including access, including uh, sustainability and everything that we've been talking about. I think then that sets the stage for, for the discussion that we need to have on how do we create value? How do we create wealth out of land? Yeah, I'll maybe pop in really quickly and just add that us too, we haven't started implementing our plan yet, but it was really important that clarity um, that like flexibility and certainty like that can <laughs> we're always trying to balance those things but some clarity um, is provided to the development community and landowners of all types so that um, investments wise investments can be made so the clarity that we were able to provide in terms of identifying corridors for growth town centers acknowledging that um uh, we also phased and staged where growth will happen over time. Uh, so I think that is something uh, that has, was, is critical also if you want to be able to turn, which 
all of these city plans, they're not just about the aspiration of bringing our communities together as good social um, environments, but also we also know that they do influence really the, the real estate market and the profitability that people are seeking out of their land and the ability to create value over time through um, whatever they're doing. So providing clarity on where growth is likely to happen and then also some indication of where public investment is likely to be made in support of intensification over time equally equally important so that um, one of the jobs of the city plan is in fact not just to allow growth to happen but to enable it encourage it and help shape the city deliberately so that's what I would add. Yes so um, development development and the drivers for development uh, will deliver the city we need and want fundamentally however um, left alone to the market to deliver uh, what we found in Auckland will compromise on the quality of our environments above our values. So through the 90s, we, we had a kind of development and any development will do just for the sake of development. So we, we are left with um, a compromised quality um, in our public realm in which we've been working really hard to change. And so how the developer is brought into this is a really, really important component because they fundamentally are going to be building our city, not, a, not the um, city itself. Um, and so what benefits do we give and what benefits can we gain? Um, what is shared? Uh, ultimately, this comes to our down to our planning um, rules and regulations. So our plan is not statutory, so it's not enshrined in law. It's definitely um, aspirational. We have alongside it what we call our unitary plan. That's a rule book. So that's had a massive um, and fundamental overhaul through this process as well. And so it's meant to deliver on the Auckland plan, whether or not is yet to be seen. It's complex. We're driven by different step, um, sort of We have a Resource Management Act and a um, Local Government Act. So the Auckland Plan comes out of the Local Government Act, whereas the Unitary Plan comes from the Resource Management Act. And all our sort of policies and objectives, um, what's discretionary, what's permitted, is all in this rule book. Um, it's so vast and so big. It is also very frustrating for um, small kind of landholders and developers um, and very, very confusing at times um, for many. Um, and so what we've found with our planning processes under the, plan, under the unitary plan and the Auckland plan is a little bit slower than what the market and developers are trying to do. So they're always pushing for private plan changes which aren't sitting in the vision of the city. So we have some issues to deal with um, and ultimately developers want certainty. Um, they're quite prepared to pay for infrastructure, but um, there needs to be, you know, a, a really strong relationship built there in the future. Wonderful, thank you. I'm going to move on to our last part of the discussion today. Um, we've had a wonderful discussion, sharing of, um, I really appreciate Olivia what you said around knowledge and memory. Uh, and I think the role of memory is so powerful in these situations. And um, is a, is a term, term that we don't often hear, but I, I really appreciated that. And uh, just overall, some of the different kinds of examples of what different um, places around the world are doing and how they're achieving these things and at various levels of 
of um, implementation. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Gil um, as our respondent to uh, share some thoughts on reflections of what you've heard today, Gil. Um, perhaps if you can, some ideas that you think that um, are very salient to the work that's happening with the Vancouver plan um, and just any um, reaction that you have. Sure. Thank you very much, Kyle uh, Salomon. Um, I'll just note it's wonderful to have you as a partner in the city building efforts going forward. And I think today's uh, discussion has really um, enlivened that for me. Uh, and just thinking back to the opening of uh, Chief, Chief George, um, that um, tenor of conversation, that theme she expressed, um, that notion of walking forward together into the future and co-creating that is something that we need to keep very central here in the conversation. So I really appreciate that as the framing of this conversation today. Um, I guess the, the, the sort of global um, reflection I have is that uh, in our various ways, um, and, and many of the themes I heard today uh, are already reflected in some of our early thinking. And so it's gonna be great to mine some of the experience in more detail of my fellows on the call here. Um, but the global sense for me is um, we're motivating uh, change uh, in a more uh, enlightened way of city building and city shaping and community involvement um, than we have before as a planning profession. And to me, we're in what I would characterize as late stage capitalism uh, and perhaps late stage colonialism. And everything I heard today is a way of trying to step into the future. Neither of those huge global structures is going away tomorrow, but we can collectively be agents of change to a more um, productive um, future and a more healthful future as we assert these big questions for cities and as uh, Olivia said who are we who do we want to be and starting with the point of who are we actually and everything I heard here today was values based and community based and building from that starting point so I, I think we also just acknowledge our point in history as I said at least late stage of these global structures which are uh, the institutional foundation if you will of the way we plan and of the way we build cities so within that, um, I had um, kind of six observations about how we plan that are important and resonant to me. One is that this actually is a paradigm shift in how we plan. And so some of the key points for, there, for, for that for me were really um, uh, analyzing uh, the city, who, who we are, what we are, how things work now um, as, a, as a starting point is a, is a key uh, piece that all of them have engaged in one way or another. Um, that um, uh, at least a couple have used scenario planning deliberately, including um, uh, sort of articulating plausible futures we may not want uh, as a way of bringing real uh, sobriety and discipline to the conversation. Um, uh, and to focus um, the community dialogue around, uh, there are many terms here, core challenges, a single question in the case of uh, Kaylin's uh, uh, work, um, uh, core challenges and um, uh, was mentioned in a couple of places. So the notion of really dialing into the underlying and core challenges of each city 
uh, and to do that in a way that is not just importing uh, a formula from another place, but doing it legitimately with community deeply um, was another piece for me. Um, the, uh, alongside that, the notion of um, it's okay to be abstract, which is a, a sort of, you're, you're pushing back against a lot of expectations there. And I, I was really um, uh, delighted by that because I think without being abstract in a way, you don't get to reinvent the paradigm. You don't ask the fundamental questions. Uh, and you don't get to a cohesive strategic view that can guide all the subsequent actions. So I really appreciated the boldness of statements in, in that regard today. Um, all of them seem to be holistic and integrative. That is to say, they're no longer strictly land use plans or even land use and transportation plans, but they really take, um, as Kaylin articulated, a people-centered approach. And I think that rang through all of these examples um, that uh, that's the starting point. Uh, the health, the long-term health of the community is, is the starting point and all topics are fair topics and all aspects of city building are integrated. Um, I'll hurry here, uh, Kasilama, in the interest of time. Um, the notion that um, these are not land use plans, but they really are centered around uh, the potential for complete neighborhoods, uh, something that resonates with my own experience coming from other cities and doing this work um, was another um, key point there. And um, a very, very interesting notion coming out of Edmonton, which is to say, let's plan for a certain capacity, regardless of what year, what time scale we reach it in. Um, to do that sort of thing. There's a big anticipation in traditional planning uh, processes that you pick a horizon year, you, you gin up uh, population projections, and that's how you plan. The notion of saying, look, we could be a city of two million people, what does that mean, is a very different approach. And I thought I found that kind of an interesting challenge to how we plan. The other uh, four remaining on my list here, if those six were, were resonant observations and, and things we can learn from really leave me with, um, with questions. And those four questions for me are around governance. And there are two aspects that were talked about here. What does a form of co-governance, if you will, with um, First Nations, with senior governments, with other special districts and regional entities, what does that actually look like as a true active co-commitment and partnership? So that, that's to me uh, unexplored territory that we that some of you have, have dipped into in, in Auckland um, uh, particularly, but um, be really good to explore that. And I hear many voices there echoing that piece, but there's another dimension to that, which is, well, what does the governance system look like when it comes to the day-to-day -day transactions that actually build the cities? And while I take the idea of a transect or the four shades on the map as guidance, what what is that? What does that actually look like as a governing permitting structure when you get right down to the day to day? And I don't, I haven't heard exactly how that plays out in these examples. Um, another one for me is that because so much of these aspirations are based around community dialogue, and I use that word with emphasis, dialogue, not just information out and comments back in, but actual dialogue. That takes time in my view. And so how do you keep the timeline and the patience for a limited term government to make and adopt a plan, even if it's for future governments? Uh, how, do you, how do you do that in, in a way that meets 
uh, deadlines essentially. And so part of that for me is the, is the, the next question about how do we keep the process alive? Um, and so there's the notion of the revisit as Kaylin was articulating, but there's also the notion of expand, continuous expansion of that dialogue to educate not just the next generation, but what does this do for lar larger civic education purposes and engagement purposes? The, the plan can't just be a document and then we all go and execute it, but how does it stay alive actually? And I'd like to dig uh, more into that. And the final one for me is just, um, and I think maybe Vancouver has a unique opportunity here um, that began with what Auckland was doing, which is to try to define what reconciliation, as we like to say, and really decolonization. What does that, what does the decolonized future actually look like? And we can't know that at the beginning of a planning process, but we can set a course to discover that. And it will take um, decades probably to, to realize that. But, but setting that course seems to me one of the fundamental uh, challenges that came out of today's discussion. Um, and love to see how we progress on that aspect of our planning work uh, going forward. So thank you for the opportunity to make some observations there and thank you all for giving your, your time and expertise and we'll be following up with each one of you, <laughs> I can tell you that. Thank you for listening to episode one of City Talk. We'd also like to thank the Council for Canadian Urbanism, UBC School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture, Squamish Nation, and Rossich Hemphill Architects for their sponsorship. For the visual experience of this conversation, and there's some good lookers, go to urbanarium.org. Subscribe to Urbanarium City Talks. We'll be making more.